Father, as we sang a moment ago, here is love for the ages, uh, the love of Christ. We pray that we would uh, see it this morning, feel it, that both light and heat, as Jonathan Edwards liked to say, would be um, promoted this morning, both truth and the warmth. We would emotionally experience the love of Christ um, as we consider Christ's love over even Isaac, uh, working retroactively, covering him and covering the faithful of old. Um, Help us to see it. Help us to better uh, understand what it means to walk by faith. We pray for your spirit to be active in our midst. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we, are, we, we, we took a, a brief break from Genesis last week to consider God's uh, hand of blessing and grace in our congregation for the, over the last course of the last year and even kind of the two years of our existence as a church. And now we're back in Genesis. Now, it's interesting, though, because we were looking squarely, it felt, in the life of Jacob. And all of a sudden, we're reading about Isaac. Did, did, the, did the author forget a, a, piece, a piece of the story and think, oh, i got to get this stuff in? Scribble it in? There are these, within the book of Genesis, what, are, what commentators like to call intrusions into different stories. We'll see one in, in a little while in the Joseph story. Judah and Tamar intrudes in the middle of it. And the intrusion serves an important purpose in the story. It helps us understand the Jacob story. And so we'll see some of that this morning. But there's not a whole lot on Isaac. This is pretty much it. Now, you'll remember when Isaac and Rebekah meet, that's the longest story in the whole book of Genesis. The the love story of Isaac and Rebekah, their meeting, their marriage. And then it shifts to Jacob. And then we get kind of jammed into the Jacob story, this highlight reel of Isaac's life. And so what we're going to consider this morning is how Isaac walked in faith over the course of his life. He stumbled, we see that. He succeeded, we see that too. But most importantly, throughout Isaac's life, he leaned into God and the promises of God. And in that sense, Isaac um, lived out our calling as well, to lean into God's faithfulness to his promises to us in Christ. In other words, Isaac walked by faith. That's our call, to walk by faith. And so because this is a huge survey of Isaac's life, we've got a lot of ground to cover, and we're going to have five kind of points or headings that you can take note of. The life of faith, this is the title, Isaac and the life of faith. The life of faith means trusting God when it doesn't make sense. It means trusting God when it doesn't make sense. The life of faith means discerning God in the ordinary. The life of faith is spacious. The life of faith uh, will eventually be made sight. Our faith will become sight. That's number four. And then number five, the life of faith begins with God. And I'll I'll mention each of those as we come to them. So the first point, first of five... Life of faith means trusting God when it doesn't make sense. Look at verses 1 through 3. There was a famine in the land, besides the famine that was in the day of Abraham. Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, 
And the Lord appeared to him and said, don't go to Egypt. Dwell in the land, which I will tell you. Sojourn in this land. I will be with you. I will bless you. Uh, For to you and your offspring, I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. Isaac here experiences what Abraham has experienced. He experienced what, what Jacob will later experience. And what is often an experience for people in the ancient world, especially this part of the world. And that is famine. Famine. Things have dried up. And what Abraham is tempted to do, what Jacob does, is the same thing that Isaac is tempted to do during times of famine and drought. And it's look to Egypt. Egypt had had a resilience to drought because they had a very important thing there in Egypt. It was the Nile, which provided a constant source of water, which made Egypt a great and powerful nation. And Egypt represents, here in in the scriptures, human power, abundance, life. It's an oasis in times of drought and famine. Egypt's the big city. Like, you go to to Egypt, that's where the, the great restaurants are. That's where the good shopping is. Like, that's where you go to be entertained, Egypt. It's a, it's a power. But here's the thing. There's one problem with Egypt. God is not there. God has not promised to be with Egypt. And so Egypt represents all of these human goods and resources apart from God. And so let me ask you, what do you do when things dry up, when famine comes into your life? Now, it may not be a literal famine. You know, we're experiencing a drought right now that's growing in its severity by the day. But nobody's worried about it. I don't hear anybody fretting over, the, over what this means. The supermarkets are still relatively full with things. Um, we're resilient to famine and drought, so we don't worry about it a whole lot. Now, that may be tested at some point, but most of the time it's not. But we do have other famines that come into our life. Maybe it's an intimacy famine. Do you lean into God in those moments or do you look to Egypt? Right? Intimacy is a real human need that we have. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you lean into God or do you look to Egypt? Maybe in the form, looking to Egypt may look like online relationships. Satisfying your intimacy needs through online relationships or through pornography or through casual sex. Right? Ways of, of, of satisfying a human need Without God, apart from God, going to Egypt to satisfy those things. Maybe it's an approval famine. Maybe you feel like, I need approval. I need, I need some sense that I'm doing okay. And so you dive into work, all in, workaholism. And you're, slowly, you're getting the, the feedback, and it's positive, and it's satisfying. You're looking to Egypt in the midst of a, of a famine of approval. Or maybe it's a creature comfort famine. You think you need... Creature comforts, like a more luxurious car, more luxurious home, more luxurious meals. If I could just get that stuff, that's what I want. But God's not in it. You're, you're looking to Egypt in the midst of the famine. And here's, those th- here's the thing. Those things aren't, it's, a good meal is not a bad thing. Intimacy is not a bad thing. Doing well at work is not a bad thing. Those things aren't bad. But to the extent that we look for those things apart from God, they can become a trap 
They can become a snare. And God tells Isaac, verse 3, to stay. He says, stay. Sojourn. Stay as an alien, right? Sojourn in the land of famine. Because that's be- it's better to be in the land of famine with me than it is to be in the land of abundance without me. That's what God is saying. And that makes no sense. I mean, think... Think about this. I, it's, it's, we haven't experienced famine, m- m- most likely. Uh, Isaac's beginning to see his ribcage pop out of his flesh and that of his children and his spouse and his servants. His, their, their bones are beginning to look like they want to make a break from their flesh. That's the situation that he's in. And God calls him to stay. Now, that doesn't make any sense. To stay in the land of famine when your family in, in, in is, is, is suffering? See, here's the point. Our faith, the life of faith, doesn't always make sense in the moment. It defies sight. And sometimes God brings us into famine to teach us that God, getting God is the most important thing. Think about all of the people of God who had experiences with God and important transformation with God in the wilderness, which, which is to say in the desert, a land of perpetual famine is the land, the wilderness, is the land where God does his greatest work on his people. And, I, and God is calling Isaac to stay in the land. So when, when famine comes into our lives, we have a couple of options. We can lean into God. Or we can look to Egypt. Isaac stays. He stays put, just as God commands. And as we'll see, by the way, God is going to bless him richly and materially as a result of staying. God's going to take care of him and his family. Lavishly, as, it, as we'll see in just a moment. But there's the first point. So The life of faith means trusting God when it doesn't make sense. When he says, stay in the land of famine, even though the land of abundance is just down the way. Second thing, the life of faith discerns God in the ordinary. Isaac stays in the land of the Philistines. He sojourns in the land of the Philistines. And then we see he takes a move from his father's playbook. It's the old, my wife is my sister maneuver. Look at verse 6. So, so Isaac settled in uh, Gerar, he's staying faithful, he's remaining in the land of famine. And when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister, because he feared to say that she was his wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because Rebecca was attractive in appearance. He felt that um, him, he, as her husband, was an obstacle to the men of the city getting his wife. So rather than, she's my sister, that's what he says. Just like Abraham. He's, he, he's walking in the fear of God, and all of a sudden, on a dime, by the way, Isaac pivots to walking in the fear of man. Worried that God will not protect him in the midst of this situation. That the men of the, the Philistines will get him. And, uh, and then so they put on this masquerade. She's my sister. They're brothers and sisters. And they hold this thing up, verse 8 says, for a long time. They're under this false pretense. We don't know how long 
But for a long time, it's not just a quick thing. They're brother and sister. And then, look at verse 8. Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, just happened to look out a window, and he sees Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Verse 9. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die... Because of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you've done? You, you, one of our people could have easily lain with, with your wife and would have brought guilt upon us. And so Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or Rebekah, his wife, shall surely be put to death. So here's, here's what happens. Abimelech just happens to look out the window, and he sees Isaac, Isaacing. Remember Isaac's name means Laughter. So laughter is this common like point in the life of Isaac. Now, laughing is not the best translation. If you have an NIV, they translated it as caressing. Rebecca, um, what the Hebrew word connotes is kind of flirtatious, playful, husband-wife activity that a brother and sister would not be doing. That's what Abimelech sees. He doesn't just see them laughing. They're, They're being flirtatious with one another. And Now, remember, though, same king that Abraham runs into a few chapters back, and Abraham does the exact same thing. Remember how God shows up to Abimelech? Uh, He shows, God God appears to Abimelech in a vision and says, what's going on? Don't touch this woman. She's his wife. But God doesn't, God doesn't show up here. It just, Isaac just gets really lucky. There's no dream or vision. Abimelech just happens to look out the window and see this going on. And whoo, close call for Isaac. No, that's not, that's not what happened. God is involved, okay? It's an ordinary moment. God is involved, not in a supernatural, extraordinary, like show up in vision sort of way. God's sovereign care and providence turns Abimelech's neck, unbeknownst to Abimelech, to just happened to see Isaac and Rebekah outside of his window um, laughing with one another, right? And this is how God most often works in our lives, through the ordinary, through ordinary circumstances. And you look at that, those things, those ordinary provisions of God that, you, you know, you could kind of go either way, right? Well, we just got lucky, it was, really wasn't the prayer. We just kind of got lucky in this moment. It just happened. To, last week, we looked at all of God's blessings upon King's Cross over the last, really, 5 to 20 years, even, going back into our life. And God never showed up in a vision to us in all of this, but you saw one circumstance after another after another where it appears that God's hand is in it, and you put the whole cumulative uh, picture together of all of those ordinary workings of God, and you think a, a, a story emerges. God is at work in this congregation. God is at work in the way that He most often works in the life of the faithful, and that is ordinarily taking care of us. I mean, think, think of all the examples of God showing up in the ordinary. We just remembered the incarnation. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, 
who existed from all eternity, enfleshed himself, the extraordinary, enfleshed himself in the ordinary human form. Right? The sacraments that we're just going to take. We meet, we believe that some mysterious way, spiritually, we meet Christ. It's extraordinary. And how does it happen? Ordinarily, bread and wine. Just ordinary things. This is how God oftentimes works in our lives. But the, see, people look at the situation and say, well, well, that's just a coincidence. Isaac just got really lucky. But the eyes of faith see God's hand. And you keep tracking these things over the course of a life. And you realize there's no other explanation. God has been working in these ordinary details of, my li- of, of, of our lives. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He, he says, as we follow Jesus and explore the life of salvation, or we might even say the life of faith, we're frequently tempted by a variety of seductions to deny or avoid or denigrate ordinariness, the common way. We're incited to lust after miracle and ecstasy, after flashy displays of the supernatural. Peterson says, don't do that. God is at work in the ordinary, not by vision, but what appears just as happenstance, a gaze out the window. And all of a sudden, the mask is lifted. When, when, when Abimelech gazes out the window, the mask is lifted. Isaac and Rebekah are married. Did Isaac die? That's what he thought would happen. No, he didn't. He's protected. Abimelech provides a, a protection over him. And immediately following that, he's blessed. Big time, we see. And by the way, this is one clue to the placement of this story. Because what does Jacob spend his whole life doing? Putting on masks. And the, the characters in the story, what are they doing? They're putting on masks. And God is saying, look, your daddy did it too. He wore a mask with his sister. And your dad did it for that. Your grandpa did it for that matter. And guess what? I took care of you every time. This, all of these promises, they're not as brittle as you're masquerading or not. But they're based on my plan, my hand. And I'm going to carry you through. All the masquerading that we're going to see. Okay, so that's, um, that's, that's the second point, that God, the life of faith means that God is at work in the ordinary. And the third thing I want to mention is the life of faith is spacious, it's roomy. And we see that with all this well talk in verses 17 and following. Now, it's hard, we, we, we just take for granted the availability of water, we just turn little, you know, handles and water starts pouring out in all these places. Lots of them, even in this building, we could access water. But at this point in time, especially in light of a famine and drought, water is a preoccupation. People, the ancient world obsessed over water, and rightfully so. Well, so much time and energy was thinking about, get water. How can we find water? Do we have enough water? Is it going to be available next month? Water, water, water. And that is a question here. Um, in, in the life of Abraham, Abraham with Abimelech's blessing, begins to get wells and, and dig those up. And those are plugged up, we learn, in the time since Abraham's death. And Isaac begins to dig them up again, and it creates conflict with his neighbors. Uh, he names one of them uh, Esek, 
uh, verse 20, which literally means dispute because there's a dispute over this well. And then he digs another well and he calls it Sitna because there's more up. The, the word Sitna literally means opposition because he faces more conflict. And then all of a sudden he gets the well, Rehoboth, verse 22, says he moved from there and he dug another well. They didn't quarrel over it. There was no conflict. And so he called its name Rehoboth, which means space or spaciousness, because now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. So he names the well Rehoboth because God has made space. He's made room and he's going to make them fruitful. Now, room and space is a real difficulty for the people of God. They haven't had much of it and they won't have much of it throughout their history having actual space, room. In about 400 years, the descendants of Jacob are not going to have much room between the shackles on their wrists and their ankles and the, cha- and, the, and, the, and the shackles themselves. They're going to be bound to the Egyptians living as slaves. And then their freedom comes, and then they've got interference with the Canaanites, followed by and the Philistines and all the variety of people that live in the land. And then outsiders like the Assyrians come in. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and they disperse across the world. And we haven't even begun to talk about, you know, post-Christ and all the conflict with their neighbors as their dispersed people. Room. It's a premium for the people of God. Now, When I say the life of faith is spacious, I'm not talking literally about space, although there is an aspect in which that's the case, and we'll get to that in just a moment. One of the critiques of Christianity in our our moment is that it lacks space. It's not roomy. It's confining. Christianity stifles you, right? This idea that only through Jesus can a person be saved, that's limiting. That's, That's confining. That's stifling. Christ actually addressed this a bit in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, 7, verses 13 and following. Do you remember what he says? He said that narrow, tight, confined, he says, is the gate that leads to life. And by that, he meant spacious, open, bountiful life. He said, you come through me, you come through the narrow gate. It's just through me. But once you get in, you, you find that it's surprisingly spacious. And then he said, by contrast, the other way is, is wide. It's, it has a really wide gate, but it leads to death. It leads to destruction. And, and, the, and the, the, the notion is it's really wide, but eventually it gets narrower and narrower and narrower. narrower. And like the, um, the trash compactor that cr- almost crushes Luke and friends in Star Wars, it just keeps getting smaller and smaller. Broad is the way, and it will eventually crush you. And, and here's, here's what I think is, he's getting at. What happens when we get in through Christ? We get into the happy land of grace. This is the Christian distinctive. Grace. And there's room to run in the land of grace. There's room to fail in the land of grace. It's a happy land, the land of grace. But the only way to get it is through, the narrow, through Christ. On the other hand... Every other religious option available to us. It seems like, well, you could kind of choose anything. It's wide open. Take your pick. But it's all the same. 
It's all the same. It, 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 will, it will demand of you things that you cannot deliver, and it will keep exacting more, more heavy demands upon your life, and it eventually will crush you. That's what Jesus says. And we haven't even mentioned like the scriptures. The, the idea that we would, we would take our cues from this book, this ancient book, that seems narrow, that seems confining, that seems stifling. But it's not. L- listen to what Herman Bovink says, the, the, the Dutch theologian of the uh, 19th and early 20th century. He says regarding Revelation, from the high vantage point, the Christian looks around him, forwards, backwards, to all sides. It's a wonderful vista that opens up to him, which stretches out to the ends of the earth. And by the light of God's revelation, he sees Ahead of him and behind him, the horizon is clear. The Christian who sees everything in light of the Word of God is anything but narrow in his view. In other words, this one book contains wisdom that is broad and far-reaching. Looks into the future and tells us what's going to happen. Looks into the past and tells us what has happened. And helps orient us in this, in this world. It's broad. It's not narrow. I mean, and let's just, let's just say that God's not in this, in this book. Let's just say that this is an old historical document. Even if that were so, this is still a better guide than just kind of relying on our own perch, our own little, I'm 40 years into this life-ish, so I've got my little perch, and I'm going to kind of navigate my life based on my understanding of the world. Just on the surface, 4,000 years of, of history here in wisdom and three major religions that have somehow derived some authority from this book or your 40-year perspective on life? Which, which is more broad and open? This one. It is. So the Christian life is spacious. Okay. And by the way, so let me say this too. Isaac literally gets space in the form of this well, and the lack of conflict over it. Now, for us, the space is a figurative one, but it's also literal, because Christ is moving all of history to the establishment of his kingdom in which he will, we will live forever with Christ in the happy land of grace, co-reigning with him over all of creation. No conflict, no interference, room to roam in God's good creation. Okay, number four. The life of faith will eventually be made sight. It will eventually come into plain sight. What we don't see, maybe it's the ordinary workings of God in our life, we don't always see it. Eventually, God's hand of care will be made manifest. It will be made known. Notice the blessing and protection that uh, we, we see here in Isaac's life. Because remember, we're getting a highlight reel of his life. This is, these are decades. And, and the scriptures aren't just moving chronologically. I'll also say that. So we're, getting, we're going back and we're looking at Isaac's life as a whole. Jacob and Esau aren't in it, even though they've already been born. But here's an interesting note. Did you know that Abraham was still alive when Jacob and Esau were, until they were teenagers? So they, he had a real, Abraham was grand, grandpa to Jacob and Esau. You don't get that impression as you read, because it's not chronological. It's, the story is being placed in a way that serves the, the story. And so we're getting all of this information here in, this, in these verses. 
And at times, it's concealed how God's working. Why would God ask Isaac to stay in the land of famine and not go and get up to the place where there is food? It's difficult for the faithful to see, much less the unfaithful, for the unbeliever to see God's hand in our lives. That's an even more remote possibility. But here's what happens. God blesses Isaac. How does God bless him? Does he bless him with awesome quiet times? Yeah, he does, actually. Look at verses 2, verses 23 and following. The Lord shows up to Isaac in a vision and reiterates the promises of, to Abraham. But it's not just like incredible times with God that Isaac has. He also has a bountiful harvest, verse 12. He has fat herds because of God's blessing. Verse 14. And while there are seasons of famine in the life of the faithful, the promise is that it will be replaced. The famine will be replaced with abundant life, with abundance, with flourishing. Our faith is not just a pie in the sky um, that, you know, there's these spiritual blessings. It, it's spiritual and material blessings that come to the people of God eventually. Not immediately. There's some whole sectors of Christianity that believe that it's like immediate. That if I claim something in the name of God, I should get that. If I don't, I don't have enough faith. That's not what we're talking about. But God is bringing his people to both spiritual and even material, creational blessings. And those are evident at the end of this at the end of Isaac's life. Look at even at verses 26 and following. Even Abimelech recognizes it. He went to him, Abimelech goes to Isaac from Gerar and Ahuzath and his advisor, Phicol, the commander of his army, the whole leadership of, of the Philistines, comes to Isaac and they say, why have you come to me? Or Isaac says to them, why have you come to me seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And this is what they say. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. And they make a feast and they exchange oaths. In other words, the Abimelech and his people see plainly the blessing of God in the life of Isaac. And the same will be true of us, that the world will see plainly the fruits of the faithful, the, the work of Christ, scorned, despised, mocked, even to this day. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. And the people of God, we, Christ's church, will inherit a redeemed, restored creation that we will co-reign with Christ. And that will be made known to the whole universe, spiritual, physical, all the world will know. Those that are persecuted and downtrodden and on the margins, those that have been suffering, will be lifted as lords over creation, co-reigning with Christ. And that will be made plain as day. The world will see plainly that the Lord is with His church. And this is where the life of faith is heading. Final point, we're going to conclude with this. The life of faith, this may be the most important point, of all. The life of faith begins with God. And you see, let me ask you this. As you think about your own faith, your own walk, walk with God, do you see plainly that the Lord is with you? 
Do you see that in your life? And I don't mean like abstractly, like, yeah, I know the Lord is with me. But I mean, do you really believe in the day-to-day grind that God is with you? His hand of care, His love is is with you. And when I I ask that question, I know how this works because I know how my heart works. You begin to think of a list. It may be very subterranean, but you begin to think of of a list of things that you're doing to garner God's favor. You may be thinking, well, I'm at church. We're, we're doing a good job. We're at church. I confessed my sins really well just a moment ago. I read my Bible this week. I really, I think I did a great job at work. Life's, you know, kind of firing on, on, on all pistons. Things are, are going well. But that's not where we lean when we think about God's presence with us. It's not how we get into this life of faith. It's not by works. It's not by the law, but it's by grace. It's by the gospel. And we see that even here in this passage. Look at verse five. Why will God bless Isaac? Why will God multiply his offspring? Why will God give him the land? Why will God bless all nations through Isaac? You see it, verse five? Because, here's the why, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Isaac, I'm blessing you not because of you, but because of Abraham. And look, it says it again. Look at verse 24. The Lord appeared to Isaac again and said, I'm the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring. Why will he do that? For my servant Abraham's sake. And here's the point. This is what I want you to hear really clearly. And hopefully I say it clearly. The life of faith, God's presence with you and care of you, just like with Isaac, it's not based on what you do. It wasn't based on what Isaac did. Isaac was leaning on the work of another, Abraham. Abraham serving as a, a type of Christ. And Isaac's blessings come as a result of Abraham's work, the scriptures say. Now, but here's the thing. We think, well, Isaac's not leaning on Christ, he's leaning on Abraham. No, Abraham couldn't shoulder the salvation of the world. Abraham's fumbling around in the same manner that Isaac is in his life. Remember what Abraham said at there at the, at the mountain where he was sacrificed Isaac? The Lord will provide. And do you remember what Jesus said? He's looking forward to the future provision. And Jesus said in the Gospels, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced in it. Abraham, Isaac, all the family of faith leans wholly, entirely into the work of Christ. The life of faith begins with God. Specifically, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's where it begins. Because Jesus walked faithfully with God all the way to the cross where he shouldered our sin, we get blessed by God. Just like Isaac is leaning on to Abraham's obedience. It's because of Jesus' blessedness. The life of faith is a life lived squarely in Christ. And it's so important to say, to, to, to hear. When I say life of faith, we're so engulfed 
in a law works framework that we automatically start thinking, well, I, I got to really believe. I got to make this thing work. I hope I have enough, enough faith. It's not how it works. Faith is leaning. You exercise faith every night when you go to bed at night. Did you know that? You don't even think about it, but you're exercising faith. What happened? Do you lay down on straws or uh, like, a, like a heap of firewood at night? Or just lay down on it at all? No, you would say, no way, that's going to hurt. It's going to roll down. It's not going to hold me. But every night, you look at that bed. You don't even think about it, but you just lay down on it. And you're exercising some degree of faith in the bed that holds you. And it's what provides you with rest. Right? It holds. That's the whole point. You don't have to do anything when you lay down. You just lay. And you're leaning on the support of the bed. Now, sometimes, though, busy season at work, stress with kids, stress with friendships, we can carry our work to us to the bed and lay down on the bed. And do you get rest at that point? Not usually. You're tossing and turning, uncomfortable. Christ says, look, I'm I'm the bed. You come to me. You lay upon me, you rest on my work, you do nothing, and put your mind at ease too. Stop worrying about things, because I'm your rest, and that's what I provide, is soul rest. And all of, all of this whole life of faith is rooted in the work of Christ. It's found in Christ, and he is our boast. It begins with Christ. The life of faith means trusting God when it doesn't make sense. It discerns God's hand in the ordinary. It's spacious and roomy in the life of faith. And it will make all the sense in the world when our faith is made sight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this um, good news of your gospel. It doesn't, it doesn't appear. It's, it's, it's even difficult to discern. Just as you said initially, I think of the character from the Narnia stories who observes the stable and says the stable from the outside and the stable with the in- from the inside are like two different places. From the outside, it looks confining, small, little, and you get on the inside and a whole new world opens up. So it is with your faith. The gate is narrow, but within it is, is abundant life. We pray that you would help us experience it, help us to, um, with your spirit at work, Proclaim it, see others drawn into it, and help us to continue to be strengthened in our rest, who is Christ, as we um, continue to worship you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.